Please take your Bibles and turn to the third book of the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. We will be reading uh, the first 21 verses. Uh, For those of you who might be visiting this morning or or joining us on live stream for the first time, uh, we are going through currently and have been for a number of weeks and a couple months even, uh, a series on favorite Bible stories. And a number of you suggested dozens and dozens of stories to me. And a few of you suggested this particular passage. And so since it is Christmas Eve, I thought that uh, today would be a a good day to look at Luke chapter 2 that points to or teaches us about the birth of Jesus. And so Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You all know that there are some stories in the Bible that as soon as you hear a phrase or a sentence, uh, you know exactly where that's from. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we know that's the very first verse of the Bible. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. Children, you all know that that's the story of David and Goliath. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We all know that that's Psalm 23. And the Lord appointed a great fish. We know that's the story of Jonah being swallowed by a fish. The story before us this morning is one of those stories. As soon as you hear 
and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. You know that this is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. We're all familiar with this story. This is the time of year we, we read it, we hear about it all the time. It's, it's something we know probably very, very well. But we want to be careful that we don't miss the magnitude of this moment. Something unbelievable happens here. Something miraculous happens. Something incredible, something that that God's people had been waiting for, for for centuries, happens. This morning we're going to look at this old, familiar story, and there are three things that we want to see. First of all, there is the historical context. Secondly, there are the humble circumstances. And third, there is the hallelujah chorus. The historical context, the humble circumstances, and the hallelujah chorus. Luke tells us that that Caesar has just issued a decree that, that everyone under Roman rule must be registered. Now, they did this back then for uh, the purpose of taxation. And, and in order to, to register, you, you had to return to the home of your ancestors. You couldn't do it where you were living at the time, in all likelihood. You, you had to go back to the home of your ancestors. Now, this opening verse of, of Luke 2 might seem to you like kind of a throwaway line. It's not all that important. It's not all that significant. But by giving us this, this time stamp... Luke is telling us that this is something that actually happened in history. Children, the the birth of Jesus is not something that someone just made up. This isn't a a fable or a, a fairy tale or some work of fiction that someone came up with. The the birth of Jesus, Luke is reminding us, is set in a historical context. It took place when Caesar, specifically Caesar Octavius, issued a decree that all people under his rule should be registered. Think about this. Legends and, and myths typically don't go into detail by giving people dates and, and events. The, the point is that this passage is real history. But the other thing you want to think about here as you consider the first part of this chapter, what happens here reminds us that God is in complete control of everything. God is in control of all things. Please do not let your familiarity with this story cause you to forget or to miss that God is orchestrating everything here. He's orchestrating all of these events. You might know that in the Old Testament book of Micah, which was written about 700 years before Jesus was born, there's a prophecy in Micah, Micah chapter 5, that says specifically that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It's very, very specific. It it doesn't just give a region. It doesn't just give a location, kind of generally speaking. It gives a very specific place. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so here's Mary. She's, She's pregnant with Jesus. 
She's about to give birth to the Messiah, but, but children, where are Mary and Joseph living? They're living in Nazareth. Nazareth is, is 90 miles north of Bethlehem. It's like the distance from Ripon to Fresno, almost. How is, how is God going to get Mary, who's nine months pregnant, How is God going to get Mary to go 90 miles south so that Micah's prophecy that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem will be fulfilled? Humanly speaking, just just looking at things on kind of a surface level, this almost seems impossible. Impossible to get a woman 90 miles south. There's no minivans. There's no cars. There's no other means of transportation other than the animals in your feet. How is she going to get 90 miles south to Bethlehem for this birth? I mean, why would she travel all that way? Well, Caesar doesn't know this, but but God is going to use the decree of Caesar to work all things according to his plan and to fulfill a 700-year-old promise. Caesar thinks that he's, you know, getting a stronger grip on his kingdom. He thinks he's going to get more tax money out of this, which, which he will, But God is using Caesar to fulfill a 700-year-old prophecy about where our Savior would be born. Now, I think that that should encourage all of us this morning if we are Christians. This should be a tremendous encouragement to us that, that nothing catches God by surprise. Nothing happens where God goes, hmm, I didn't think about that. I didn't anticipate that. I didn't anticipate that that, that Mary was going to be living in Nazareth and Jesus is supposed to be born 90 miles south of Nazareth. God is in complete control of this. The the providence of God, Christian, is a, a very precious doctrine. It is a very comforting doctrine. Over 450 years ago, two men wrote what we know as the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful summary of what the Bible teaches. And, and in that document, they, they talk about God's providence. Some of you at some point in your life may have memorized what they wrote. And, and many of you here this morning have heard these words before. But, but listen to what they wrote. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That includes the big things in life. That includes the small things in life. God uses even the decree of the most powerful man in the known world at that time, Caesar, to fulfill his promises. Caesar isn't the real king, is he? God is the real king. And he's orchestrating all of this so that his 700-year-old promise will be fulfilled. It's a marvelous and comforting truth for us because there will be times in your life where you will say to yourself, can I trust God in this? 
There'll be times when you will wonder, will, will God keep his promises to me? There will be times when you want to ask God, God, why are you doing this this way? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why is this going on? And, and at times like that, you can remember this passage. You can remember how God works through a pagan ruler so that a woman and her husband will go 90 miles south so that God's promise will be fulfilled. So that's the historical context. Notice now the humble circumstances. Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth. They travel 90 miles south to Bethlehem. Uh, this would not have been an easy journey. If I, if I asked you today, get in your car after church and drive down to Fresno, it, it would not be that difficult. Take you about an hour and a half to get down there. In, in that day, it would have been a long trip. It would have taken about a week to make the whole trip, three days down there, maybe a day for the registration, three days to get home. But, but Joseph and Mary have no choice. You've got to do what Caesar says to do. And so they, they leave Nazareth and they, they set off for Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem, and you all know the story. Mary goes into labor, and she gives birth to Jesus, and, and we read these famous words that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, now we might picture this as if Joseph and, and Mary and the baby Jesus are, are looking for a place to stay, and, and every, every place that they pull up to, the, the neon lights, No vacancy. No vacancy. Holiday Inn Express is full, Hampton Inn is full, La Quinta's full, even the Blue Light Motel is full. Everything's full. But, but we don't want to think of it in terms of our own understanding of hotels today. Inns, inns in those days were, were really quite different. Uh, in those days, people would, would have um, uh, big rooms that they would rent out for guests. And in this big room, there would essentially be two sections in that room. One section would, would be for the people. That's where the people would sleep. And, and the other section in that big room would be for the animals. But it was just one big room. Apparently, after Jesus is born, uh, there's, there's no room for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus in the people section. And, and so they end up having to stay in the animal section. And, and they lay, notice, they, they lay the baby Jesus in a manger. That word manger is a word that, that means a feeding trough. And, and this makes sense, right? Um, there's no room for them where the, the humans sleep. And, and so they end up in the animal section. And in the animal section, there are these feeding troughs. And so they, they take the baby Jesus and they lay him in a feeding trough. Now, now, some people say that these feeding troughs were, were made out of wood. Other people say that the feeding troughs were just basically a hole in the ground. We, we don't know for certain. But, but let's face it, regardless of what this feeding trough was, if it was built out of wood or it was a hole in the ground, the point is the same, that Jesus came in humility. He came in the most humble of circumstances. And it's a reminder to us this morning that, that Jesus humbled himself for a purpose. He humbled himself for the sake of your salvation. If you were, if you were here last um, Sunday night in our, in our Christmas celebration, 
You might remember that, that we looked at the first part of John chapter 1. And, and we saw that, that Jesus is no mere creature. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is God himself. That's who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus will always be. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If, if you're tempted to have too low a view of Jesus, remember what Paul says there. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the supreme one, the glorious one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely holy. That's who Jesus is. And so, when he comes to earth, what would we expect we would expect great fanfare. We would expect him to be born in a palace. We would expect kings and, and rulers and, and other great and influential people of society to be present. We would expect a setting fit for a king. But that's not what happens. He's born in the most humble of circumstances. Him and his family end up in the animal section of an inn. And he's placed in a, a place where animals eat their food. I mean, it's, it's almost, we, we know the story and so it's familiar to us, but, but it's almost unimaginable. Eternal God taking on human nature and condescending to us. It is an act of, of infinite humility. If you ever doubt, Christian, if you ever doubt Jesus' love for you. Remember how he humbled himself for you. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican bishop from many years ago, said of this passage, he said, we see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, Surrounded by his father's angels, it would have still been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should still have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passes knowledge. Ryle was right, this is a love that passes knowledge. You see, Christian, in, in, in his birth, we are getting a glimpse of what will be the pattern of his entire earthly ministry. Jesus suffered, didn't he? All throughout his ministry, especially at the end. Why? For you. And for the sake of all his elect. And it is through his humiliation and through his suffering which culminated, of course, on the cross. It is through that that we are saved from our sins and from the judgment that we deserve. 
You see, every, every person in this room by nature has a great need. The great need is not for a better job. It's not for more friends. It's not for an easier life. We need our sins forgiven. We need our sins removed. We need a perfect righteousness so that we can escape God's judgment. A lot of people today think that they can achieve that by ascending to God. That they can essentially get on the ladder of their good works and their performance and that through that they can ascend up to heaven. The problem though, the Bible says that if you want to go that route, you have to be perfect all of your life. You you heard the Ten Commandments read earlier, you have to keep all of them perfectly all of your life in word, thought, and deed. The the only way that you can have your sins forgiven, the only way that you can have righteousness you need to stand before God, the only way that you can have eternal life is not by you ascending to God. It's by God descending to you. It's by God coming down to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And, and maybe you're here this morning and, and you're on that ladder and you think it's working. I got my good works. I got my church membership. I got my charitable giving. I'm getting there. I'm climbing one rung at a time and I'm going to make it. No, you're not. None of us will. The only way, and and this is the message we need to hear at Christmas season, this is the message we always need to hear. The only way that you can have your sins forgiven, the only way that you can have eternal life is by God coming down to us and living a perfect life and dying the death we deserve to die and rising again. And you receive this gift like you would receive any gift with an empty hand. With an empty hand of faith. That's how you make salvation your own. You receive it by faith alone. That's the message of the gospel. Not us ascending to God, but God descending to us. Jesus came in the most humble of circumstances so that you and I might know God as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. Well, finally, we have the Hallelujah Chorus. Someone else enters our story. It is the shepherds. Children, do you know much about shepherds? Shepherds, very interestingly in that day, had a horrible reputation. They were, they were viewed as maybe, maybe slightly better than tax collectors. And you know tax collectors were the, like the most despised, vile people on the planet in the eyes of the Jewish people. Shepherds were outcasts. Um, shepherds were, were seen as liars and thieves. 
Um, they, they lived out in the fields, obviously taking care of their sheep, and, and because they lived out in the fields, they couldn't keep the ceremonial law, and so they were considered to be unclean. Uh, these aren't exactly the kind of people you would expect to be present when there's this big birth announcement of the Messiah. Well, one night, these shepherds are out in their field. They're, they're doing what shepherds do. They're watching over their flocks. And all of a sudden, an, an angel of the Lord shows up, and, and the glory of the Lord shines all around them. And, and naturally, the shepherds are freaked out. Shepherds are, are filled with fear. I think we would be filled with fear as well. That's often the reaction that people have in the Bible to the glory of God. Read Isaiah chapter 6 and, and notice Isaiah's reaction to God's glory. And, and so here are these shepherds. They're in the middle of the field at night. All of a sudden, an angel comes. The brilliant glory of God is on display. And, and notice what the angel says to the shepherds in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. What is that news? Well, look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the good news. That's the very best of news, that a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, has been born. And don't miss the first three words of verse 11. For unto you. This was for us. God did this for us. It is this good news that drives away our fear. You see, without this good news, you and I have every reason to fear God. We have every reason to be afraid. And that's because one day all of us will stand before God. Every one of us in this room will stand before God one day. And if we stand before him on the basis of our supposed good works, we should be greatly, greatly afraid. We should be terrified. But the good news, Christian, is that a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer has come. And the Bible says that if we trust him, if we place our faith in him, our sins are forgiven. And, and, and we are clothed in Jesus' perfect righteousness. And therefore, you do not need to be afraid. The condemnation that you deserve and I deserve has been removed because of Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, to whom this good news is delivered, right? Our, our passage doesn't say, one day the religious leaders were, were sitting around and they were talking about how wonderful they are. And they were talking about how they're so much better than most people when all of a sudden an angel came to them. It doesn't say that. An angel comes to lowly shepherds. An angel comes to people who are despised and hated. Did you know, by the way, that, that shepherds couldn't even testify in a court of law? Because no one thought you could believe or trust a shepherd. They, they weren't men of their word was their reputation. That's the people who get this good news. 
And, and this reminds us of something that the Bible echoes again and again and again, and this is so comforting for us, and that is that the gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel isn't for the self-important. It's for the lowly. The gospel isn't for the self-righteous. It is for the needy. The gospel isn't for those who, who first clean up their lives. The gospel is for the unclean. The gospel is not for people who have it all together. The gospel is for people who know they're messed up. The, the message of Christmas is not that Jesus came for good people. It's not that God made a list and checked it twice. And he knew who was naughty and who was nice, and so he sent Jesus for the nice people. That's not the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that Jesus came for sinners. Brothers and sisters, it is this message that, that is to shape the ministry of, of our church and, and any church. You know, it's a good question for a church to ask itself regularly, does our message and, and does our ministry mirror the message of the Bible? In our preaching, in our Bible studies, in our interactions with one another, do we give evidence that we understand that the gospel is good news for sinners? Or do we give the impression that if we just work hard enough, if we just clean up our lives enough, if we're just moral enough, we can manage to make ourselves acceptable to God because we're good people. What is our message? Is it, is it Christ crucified for sinners? Or is it sinners who first clean themselves up for Christ? Is it Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself? Or is it just try harder? Just be better and God will accept you. The first message, Christ for sinners, is the message of heaven. The second message, you can do it, clean yourself up first, is the message of hell. I'm thankful, and, and I know that you are too, that the truth is that it's the first message. It's the message of Jesus for sinners. We rejoice this morning, if we know Christ, that good news comes to sinners like us and tells us what Jesus did for our salvation. Again, look at, at to whom this message comes. It comes to despised shepherds. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, I'm not good enough for this. I gotta be better. None of us are good enough. Look to Christ and he will wash you clean. The only fitting response, the hallelujah chorus part, is what we find in verses 13 and 14. Suddenly there was with the angel 
a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's how we respond to the good news. We respond by giving him all the glory that he did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. We respond by singing to him. That, that, by the way, is why we sing in our worship services. We, we sing as a response to who God is. We, we sing as a response to what God has done for us. And we shouldn't be afraid to sing out. Now, you might say, well, I have a very good voice. I don't care. The Bible says make a joyful noise. We sing out in praise to God because of this good news this morning. That is our response. And it's not just the angels. If you look at verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I love the Christmas story because it is so, so simple. Children, you can understand this, right? So simple. But it's also so incredibly profound that that we will never, ever, ever plumb the depth of the meaning of Christmas. We will never, ever exhaust the comfort that this true story gives us. I love this passage. I hope you love this passage. It tells us that God is in control of all things. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be worried. God's in control. God got Mary and Joseph to go 90 miles south. When there didn't seem to be any way, humanly speaking, that that would happen, God did that to fulfill his promise. He will fulfill every single promise to you. Not one will fail. I love this passage also because it reminds me that Jesus came down from heaven and humbled himself because he loves us. Because he loves us so much and he he accomplished our salvation in doing so. And I love this passage because it tells me The gospel is for sinners, sinners like me. The gospel's not for the righteous, there are none. The gospel is for the sinner. Take that with home, take that home with you today. And with the angels, say glory to God in the highest. Thank you, God, for doing this for me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this old and familiar story. But Lord, what a story it is. What a truth it teaches us. How thankful we are that that you are in control of all things. That even when our world seems out of control. Even when our personal lives seem so uncertain. You are sovereign. And you are providentially working everything 
according to your purposes for our good and for your glory. We thank you for our Savior who came down from heaven so that we might know you. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that is for sinners. May we believe it, may we rest in it, may we tell others of it, and may we sing praise to you for opening our eyes to see its truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together number 283, Fairest Lord Jesus. He is our beautiful Savior. He is the one who loves us so much that he came and died for us. We'll sing the first three stanzas. We're going to save stanza four for the doxology. But stanzas one, two, and three of 283, and let's stand as we sing. that last stanza as our doxology. A reminder that the second service today is at 4 p.m. We will again focus on Christ coming into this world and who he is and what he's done for us. Uh, Tomorrow at 10 a.m. is our Christmas Day service, so all of you are, of course, invited to that. And before we sing uh, the doxology the Lord gives to us, his parting word of blessing, so receive that blessing now. The love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.